HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Culture and Flavor is a podcast about food and culture centered in Black and Indigenous foodways. Hosted by myself, Zella Palmer, right here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Each episode features high vibrational conversations with cultural bearers, chefs, farmers, scholars, barbecue pitmasters, and more. Where there is flavor, there is history. Join me on Culture and Flavor and all of my guests as we share stories that will have you praise dancing, cooking, conjuring, and inspiring your culinary journey. Welcome to Culture and Flavor, everyone. This is another beautiful episode. I'm so excited today to talk with the lovely Angela Locklear Queen. Um, I'm just, I've been following her on social media for quite some time, and we finally have a chance to really, um, you know, have a great conversation and we've been passing each other. Um, we went, you know, I'll explain everything, but I guess we were in the same place. We found out we were in the same place at the same time a year ago. So, um, I'm so excited to talk to her this, um, for this episode. And I just wanted to talk about just, you know, the South, um, and how your last name is your birthright. And it tells you who your people are your lineage, the sacrifice, the love, and it reveals many rivers that they have crossed. I was named after my mother's grandmother, Zella Locklear. My late mother's mission, for as long as I can remember, was to tell the stories of her lineage from eastern North Carolina. The story of her great-grandparents, Arthur and Melissa Locklear, who were small farmers in North Carolina, and eventually how they all had to leave for Indianapolis during a very tumultuous time when a scourge of white supremacy created an extremely hostile and violent environment for Native Americans. They organized a group of Locklears to leave. I have picked up the torch from my mother after she passed and you know, while she was alive. She was always searching, researching, and spending time in North Carolina to walk where they walked, reclaim what was taken, and to tell their stories. In the final moments of my mother's life, I was able to reflect on our last trip together in 2019 when we attended the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina powwow. I remember a rainbow appeared after a hard rain. She shed some tears and said they are here with us. For many, it's a long journey to return to the land and to remember. On today's episode of Culture and Flavor, we welcome Angela Queen, the, lock, the author of Native American Herbal Medicine for Beginners. Angela has been decolonizing wellness herbalism spaces for almost 20 years. Today, she uses her extensive knowledge in herbalism and nutrition as a marketing professional, supporting consciousness and ethical brands that choose to avoid appropriation and make a difference in the world. Additionally, Angela nurtures an herbal tea brand called Elemental Herbal Teas. Angela is a member of the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina and has always felt a strong connection to the Southern landscape. She wrote her first book in 2022 to provide a foundation of herbal knowledge through the lens of Native American culture. 
Her book features multiple plants native to Turtle Island and 75 unique recipes to help you build your own herbal apothecary. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Zella. It's so wonderful to be here. It is so wonderful to talk to you. I've, I've just been watching your journey because I'm always, you know, kind of on social media, just looking for Lockleers. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and, um, you know, I saw your, I've just been, been watching your journey and it's been really inspiring. And I purchased your book when you released it. And, you know, just even just you talking about just your own personal healing journey and reclaiming your roots. Um, can you talk a little bit about just your journey to the your your book that is out now on Amazon? I'm going to definitely promote it. Native American Herbal Medicine, 75 Natural Remedies for Wellness and Balance. So if you could just talk a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so um, I worked in the health and wellness field for several years in the retail capacity, and it didn't leave me much time to connect with the earth, and I had always just dreamed of it while I was working. I was in management, so I worked several hours a week, and when I decided to stay home with my daughter, I said, I'm ready to plant this garden, and I had done some gardening periodically throughout the years and learned I was not very good at growing at growing vegetables. My grandmother, she was amazing at growing vegetables, but I was not. So I said, well, I'm going to grow herbs because I've, I've read that they are very self-sufficient and um, can endure a lot. So I said, well, I'm going to grow herbs. And I just started my herb garden when I was eight months pregnant. And I remember thinking about the women in my family, my ancestors, every time that got really difficult and it got hot and I was had this big belly and I was planting these seeds. And I just thought, you know, they had no choice but to farm the land. And I'm here with gratitude and the ability to choose. And that just felt so large to me. It felt, um, I don't know, like I said, there was an immense gratitude for everything they've done to get us to where we're at now and that I had that ability to choose. So I planted those seeds and watched those plants grow. And to be honest, the first year I had a lot of plants, but I didn't harvest many of them because I by then I had my baby and I was just overwhelmed and it was hot. I'm here in the South and it was very hot. So I gave in and I let the garden just sit there, but all of these plants went to seed. And the next year, all of these little seedlings came up without any of my work. And they just multiplied all over my yard. And I was like, and wow, did the, the gratitude of abundance set in. And I would collect all of these herbs and I would dry them and I would put them in pretty jars and build up my apothecary. And my husband says, what are you going to do with all of these dried herbs? You're just collecting them. And, you know, I was just really caught up in the moment of awe and how these plants just came out of nowhere and that I knew that there was a greater force behind them, you know, bringing them into presence for me. And I said, well, maybe I think I'll create a little tea, a tea blend, because I had years of herbal knowledge. So I said, I'm going to create a little tea blend and I'm going to see if my friends and family will buy it just to give me a little supplemental money for my garden. And I had a little herbal newsletter that I would send to friends and family. So I said, oh, I'll put it there and see if anybody will buy it. And um, a couple moms from the community found my tea and they posted about it on Facebook and the holistic moms community is pretty strong here. And next thing you knew, I had people, moms asking me, do you have a tea for this? Do you have a tea for this? What about this? And I thought about it. I said, well, I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of passion. And maybe this is the next step. So I just went into my little apothecary and started formulating with a variety of herbs and creating new teas. Mm. And there it was born. <laughs> Mm. In your book, you know, you talked about um, the four sacred medicines. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, just I think about North Carolina and I just um, also think about indigenous practices throughout the U.S. and how so much has been um, stolen, but, you know, and and erased. But now I do feel, you know, and, and, and it's fascinating to see social media and this um age where you see native communities sharing information with each other letting you know people know mm-hmm. we're here we're doing the work you know we've always been doing the work but now we can connect in a, a, a deeper way um, and we can you know pass this information on to each other um, and you talked about the four sacred medicines you know and I just it, it warmed my heart you know because I was just thinking about cedar and the so many medicinal properties of cedar, sage, sweetgrass, tobacco, you know, and when you think about North Carolina and how much they produced, um, you know, they were the number one state to produce um, tobacco for the, for the country. And, and, and unfortunately, tobacco became, you know, a, a commercial product that, you know, kills many people. Unfortunately, it makes people a lot of sick, but originally it was a medicinal plant. Can you talk a little bit about that? And it was uh, religious as well, I should say. Yeah. Um, you know, including the sacred plants in here was a challenging decision, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, it came from the publisher and I had always been a little bit sensitive about including um, ceremonial herbs and a mass production just because I don't want them to be commercialized and commoditized and you know I just felt a sense of protection not only for me but also other tribes because if you take something like white sage it doesn't grow here in the east so the tribes that it's really connected to or in California so I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't also crossing a boundary you know, in, in supplying information that wasn't a plant that was specific to my people. And like you said, tobacco is very specific to my people. Like I hear stories of, you know, one of my um, grandparents, she had to work the fields and she, she had tobacco poisoning a lot of times and would just get sick, she said. And my grandfather actually quit school at 15 to work the tobacco fields. And like you said, it became a commercialized product, but to our people before that, it was a ceremonial herb. So it was used in prayer, it was used to acknowledge birth and marriage and death. So I just really wanted to pay respect to that and that or that plant that's so connected to my people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, you did a great job of just giving, um, you know, just a, a, it, what it is, a beginner's guide to, to Native American um, herbal medicine, because it is, you know, heartbreaking when you see sage um, everywhere, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and just, um, and not, I don't, Think that people fully understand sometimes, um, you know, that if when we put, yes, you know, we want people to heal, you know, that people should heal, etc. But, you know, let's not overproduce. And, you know, the U.S. has a habit sometimes of doing that. And, you know, just capitalism in general has a habit of overproducing things and to the point where it's just watered down. And, you know, the, the people that it was meant for can't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and that I mean, I think that, you know, we we have a lot of healing to do um, just in general in this um, in this world as humans. But I want to go into something that you also you uh, quoted John Lawson's book, History of North Carolina, where he wrote, among all the discuss- discoveries of America by the French and Spaniards, I wonder why none of them were so kind to have kept a catalog of the illnesses they found natives able to cure. Why did you put that statement in there? And I'm going to ask you to expound upon that a little bit. Wow. Um, I just wanted it to be known that the indigenous people knew the way that plants could heal us for centuries before colonists showed up and that it wasn't documented. 
And I wanted to impress that, you know, there was a herbal surge in the 70s that Native American people were left out of. And many of the herbs that were taken by, um, you know, those that led that surge in the 70s, many of those that the information they learned from Native peoples or it was rooted in Native practices and even African American practices but they were excluded from that. You know, not only to mention that until the Religion Act was passed, Native Americans, it wasn't legal to practice ceremonial acts, which typically connected to plant medicine. So I, I did want to make sure that that was in the book. Um, yeah, so I hope that I got that message across in the brief way that I could. I think you really did. And, you know, just for those who are listening, that was in 1978 where the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was signed and indigenous people didn't have the freedom to practice mm -hmm. their traditional ways. I mean, that was, you know, in the 70s and the 70s wasn't that long ago, you know, and mm -hmm. even just when you think about um, powwows and, you know, um, indigenous rights, uh, land grabbing, you know, the the Dakota pipeline is, is, I could go on and on and on. Um, it's always been a fight. And, you know, when you think about just even powwows to the, today, I remember being with a friend of mine, um, Jessalyn Kazaya, who is also Lumbee. And, uh, we were at the, um, at the Kohari, um, tribal center, another, uh, tribe in uh, North Carolina. And I remember um, Greg, Mr. Greg, crying, you know, just tears of joy, but also, you know, the realization that his granddaughter can now dress in, dress in regalia, you know. And um, he was, you know, he was made fun of when he was growing up. And, you know, it was, it was looked down upon, right? And so even just having your book out, you know, just to start the conversation, I think, um, opens up the doors for not only for non-natives to learn, but for um, native communities to ha start having these conversations, just like you said in your own community, they said, oh, you know, can I get some of those herbs? Can I get some of those um, teas? So I just want to applaud you for listening to your ancestors and hearing the call and, you know, um, going forward with that. Um, and in their book, you talk you have sections in here just listing some of the um, different herbal, um, different herbs and best storage practices. And it's funny because I remember during COVID, I was in Walmart and <laughs> I remember like standing and, um, and just, you know, everybody was in a panic trying to get, you know, food. And all of a sudden I would look to my left and I remember seeing all of these people just standing in the vitamin and, you know, herbal sections and everybody was trying to figure out how to cure themselves, you know, and then everybody was, you know, buying elderberry and just, and it's, it, we shouldn't have to wait until, you know, something as, as tragic as COVID happens to learn about, um, what this, land has to offer. Can you talk a little bit about just some of the essential herbs that we need to know? Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too. During the pandemic, it became very difficult to access herbs. And I, that is a time that my tea business took a little bit of a break on top of having children at home to homeschool. So yeah, the pandemic really changed things in the herbal sphere. Um, I believe that some of my favorites to have on hand are elderberry, of course, that helps with the immune system. Um, let's see, hibiscus. I love hibiscus, um, and it's great for kids because it has that bright pink color, so you're able to kind of make it into a little bit of a juice, and it's high in vitamin C. Um, I think any type of mints. Mints just really support the digestive system with being like a calming herb so that it's really easily accessible. And I always just think of that accessibility and ease of use because there's so many plants that, that, do a multi, that do multiple actions. So, you know, but how can you get one plant that's easy to use, very accessible and could work on different levels? 
So I definitely think the mints, elderberry, elderberry is growing now um, in the southeast. It's going through its transition of, of becoming berries from flowers. Um, let's see. I think that's all I have right now. Okay. And I remember um, there's this book by uh, Michelle E. Lee, Dr. Michelle E. Lee, and she uh, writes a lot about, um, you know, the medicinal and um, sake and religious purposes of different herbs. And it's called Working the Roots Over 400 Years of Traditional African-American um, mm. Healing Herbs. And she talked about yellow root in North Carolina and how, you know, it used to grow abundantly and how, you know, it was used um, for medicinal purposes. And, you know, now it's, you know, one of those um, herbs that's basically endangered, you know. What are some of the herbs that are endangered that we need to, you know, figure out how to save seeds or, you know, work with indigenous communities to make sure that we don't, um, you know, lose them. And I know sage is definitely one of them. Um, but, you know, do, do you know of any other ones? Um, ginseng is another one. So, and I know in the um, Western North Carolina mountains that they do a lot to protect that plant. I have a friend that does a lot to protect the plant. So, and, you know, I've, I'm familiar with the book that you mentioned and it's a beautiful book. Um, and like you said, yellow root is one. So I tried to avoid those types of plants in the book because I didn't want to um, perpetuate that and we need mm -hmm. to have a greater understanding. So um, the United Plant Savers Association is a good website to access to learn more about that, about plants that are endangered. And like you said, white sage is a really big one. And that's just another that I just try to protect by not showing it on social media, you know, not per, um, perpetuating just, you know, the commercialization of it. So because it is poached on a regular basis, and like you said before, it just doesn't give access to the indigenous peoples of that land that need to have access for to continue to teach their traditions mm -hmm. to the youth and to continue on with their ceremonies with that plant. Mm -hmm. And I've also seen you um, some of I think I saw one of your videos where you talked about passion flower. Um, can you talk a little bit about passion flower? It's such a beautiful, um, you know, it's such a beautiful herb. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, passion flower is one of my favorites. Um, like you said, it is beautiful with this bright purple flower and these little, like, I don't know, these little fingers that come out of it. It is a vining plant that grows all over the southeast and it is commonly used for stress and anxiety. Um, traditionally, the Native Americans used it for menstrual pain because it has a um, sedative action to it. So, um, and I also read whenever I was doing research for the book, and I had not read this before, that they use the root, the juice of the root for eye infections. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone try that now um, unless they are highly trained by someone, but I just found that interesting, so I included that in the book. I've never used the root. I use the aerial parts, which are the leaves and the flowers, um, and we actually went picking them yesterday. So um, passion flower spreads like crazy. So it's, you know, wherever you find a patch, you're going to find a bunch of it. Um, and it's also the food, the one food source for the fritillary butterfly. So I love that aspect. So I always leave, I never harvest the whole entire plant. I harvest um, tender leaves and the flowers and I leave the bulk of it for the butterflies and um, yeah, just to, for the wildlife. Mm, mm. Another herb that you talked about, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but could you just give um, a little background about it? Because you wrote such a beautiful story about it. The black drink. Is it Yopan Holly? Yeah, Yopan Holly. Um, that is actually a shrub that grows native here. And like you said, it can be consumed in what they call a black drink. So it has um, theobromine in it. So... Um, Try to think. 
Yeah, so it helps with the mood, you know, and a little bit of energy, and it was consumed instead of coffee a lot of times, and it was a beautiful ceremonial drink. And you have to roast the, the leaves to get that black color, So, but it is delicious. Mm, and you quoted in your book, um, from the travels of William Bartram, 1791. Wow. Bartram wrote, our chief with the rest of the white people in town took their seats according to order. Tobacco and pipes were brought. The calumet was lighted in smoke, circulating to the usual forms and ceremony. And afterward, black drink conclude the feast. Fascinating. I mean, your the research that you included and, and some of the stories that you included in this book, I think is really um, profound. And, you know, even though it's a it's a beginner's guide to learning about apothecary, I still think, you know, just your own um, background and, you know, and being Lumbee and uh, and definitely, you know, the research that you've done to include specific to North Carolina, I think is um, so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And thank you for quoting that part of the book. Yeah. Um, I had a word count that I had to stick to with the publisher, but I really, my goal was to fit as much information there um, as possible while sticking to the word count. So I had to get Mm. creative. So beautiful. And then in the um, end, you also offer recipes um, different relief teas. There's passion flower, stress relief tea. I like mark the ones that I definitely want to try and I definitely want to buy some of your, um, teas, health energy balls. Um, you know, the black drink that we talked about, the opan tea, milkweed, seed bombs. I mean, so many, um, different, you know, just a taste of what, um, you know, we can do to avoid, going to the hospital, you know, um, and, you know, on all the diseases that most BIPOC communities are afflicted by, you know. Um, when I also think about pine tip tea, uh, and I think about North Carolina and just not only North Carolina, but other states that have, you know, pine trees and the how so many, how the land is so sacred and Um, how, you know, we've lost a lot of trees. I mean, we see that not only in the States, but in places like Brazil and the Amazon, uh, and just how indigenous people are always being threatened and pushed out and are the, the cultivators and caretakers of the land. And you have a recipe for pine tip tea. Can you talk a little bit about just why pine trees are so sacred to indigenous people in uh, North Carolina. And I think, you know, just for our listeners, North Carolina has uh, some of the largest uh, tribes and, you know, and for Lumbees alone, 55,000, there are 55,000 members. There's the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina, there's Halawasaponi, there's Coherie, um, there's Cherokee, and, um, you know, so many other ones. Uh, so I, you know, I wanted to just lift up those tribes in North Carolina and those across the States who are either, you know, not, I I hate the, that word, but who are tribes, you know, whether they are getting federal funds or not. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about just your pine tip tea and just how sacred pine trees are to North Carolina. And Florida, I think you've mentioned that too. Yes. Um, I just think of, you know, the Lumbee, we're the people of the pine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, and I remember my grandmother making pine needle baskets. You know, they're just part, they're our relatives, right? Mm -hmm. They've been here from beginning of time and we just have such a strong connection with them and then the pine pine tip tea and the nourishing qualities of it the vitamin c and it's great for the immune system you know and i think i mentioned in the book about the collecting resin as a livelihood for the eastern tribes Um, and i know that there was a a group um, from lumberton from pembroke that ended up in augusta georgia if i'm correct Mm -hmm. Um, and they were collecting turpentine. So yeah, there's a deep connection and tradition with the trees there and throughout the Eastern part of the the country. For those who are um, 
you know, searching to find more about um, just herbs, you know, why should they read your book? I feel like my book is an accessible starting point to learn more about herbs. And, you know, I put a lot of consideration in there to make sure that it was approachable for natives, non-natives. And I also thought about how would someone feel? Um, So there was a lot of thought that went behind that because, you know, I had to work with what the publisher was asking me to write about. And we had to go back and forth on certain aspects like writing about sacred ceremonies which I was um, just pretty adamant that I, I, I couldn't cross that line. And that's mm-hmm. where the, the elements came into, because as I reflected on those sacred ceremonies, I said, well, the elements play a big part in ceremony, whether it's air, fire, earth, you know, um, sweat lodge is very earth oriented. And the elements transcend culture, that they're in so many um, non-native cultures and or native cultures and non-native cultures actually so that made it a little more approachable and it just connected more with me of like how if it was a reconnecting native coming to my book wanting to learn more about their culture how would they feel if they've never participated in a ceremony so you know just acknowledging that I want to bring everyone to the table for this conversation. So I want a native person to feel respected when they read the book, that I didn't cross any lines to teach anything that I wasn't, um, um, I say capable or it wasn't in my, it just wasn't right, you know? So I had to Mm -hmm. acknowledge like, does this feel right in my spirit? to teach this part and is it mine to teach because you know there's over 500 tribes in this country and I'm not going to know everything when it comes to plant medicine and even when considering the herb profiles because I had to do 30 and I'm way more acquainted with the southeast but they wanted me to of course include plants from across the that um, turtle island so I said well I'm going to do this, but I have to acknowledge in myself that I don't know this plant as intimately as as someone from a from say the Navajo tribe, you know, mm-hmm. in the desert. That I don't know this desert plant, so I hope that I can give it the respect that it deserves and the respect that they deserve. So there was that perspective as a native person coming to read it, maybe a reconnecting native person, and then you know, a non-native and how could I bring all this together and make sure that it's a safe book, you know, that provides a foundation of information just to, to move you net, move you to one step, you know, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully it intrigues you enough to learn more about your native population in your area you know, was one of my goals is to make sure, start with where you're at and learn those plants that are in your circle and connect to the tribe in your area to ask them, you know, what plants, what are, tell me more about these plants because they're Mm -hmm. going to be your greatest resource. And then, um, you know, and I think that the recipes were able to showcase some of that merging together because whenever I had to create the recipes there's 75 like you said and I said there's no way I'm going to do this by only using plants that native peoples used so I had to bring in um, herbs and spices from India and Asia and you know and that part to me was just really exciting to start to see that rainbow of European herbs because mint is native to Europe you know And it was brought over here and it's culinary herb, but you know, you can't have these beautiful teas without having that bright flavor of something of a herb like mint. So I really reflected on how we are bringing so many cultures together in herbalism and that each need to be acknowledged on their own, but that they work together now to supply us with so many amazing flavors, textures and health benefits. And that's what I look at whenever I'm formulating is flavor, texture, health benefits. Like how can I make this very like artistic, approachable, and really fun Mm -hmm. also. Mm. 
And you have a section in your book um, on nutrition, which is so important uh, when you look at, you know, just alone, you know, just in indigenous communities and, you know, like I said, BIPOC communities, we um, are all um, victims of, you know, just this, uh, you know, fast food generation, genetically modified foods. And, you know, i we have to return to a better way um, of taking care of ourselves. And we have to listen to indigenous community members and, um, you know, because otherwise we'll continue. And those who, you know, are practitioners, uh, people like yourself who are doing the work and putting out the information so that we can heal our communities. Um, some of the, some of the recipes that you have included herb infused bone broth, um, pineapple weed and coconut granola, sumac uh, lemonade, ultimate tonic tea, mountain mint mouthwash. I mean, that's an oral health, and that's really cool as well. But I wanted to just, you know, talk about just even just North Carolina and collards um, and talk about just how, you know, we have these ingredients and we talk about Southern cuisine, when we talk about like even just Southern teas and, you know, all these dishes that eventually have become mainstream, but we have moved away from how sacred they are um, and when to pick them, when to only eat them and on when to eat them in season. And I think about uh, collard sandwiches, which, you know, Lumbies are known for if you go to any of the powwow, uh, Lumbie powwows or homecoming, uh, you know, you can try an authentic lumpy collard sandwich, which is mind blowing. And, um, you know, it, but it, it, the collards are not a year round, you know, they're picked at a certain time. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more just about your idea of nutrition and how we can move forward. Um, thinking about indigenous recipes, thinking about, um, you know, like you said, using, other indigenous ingredients from abroad uh, that can add also to, you know, our health. Oh, I love a good collard sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I make it was, um, hungry. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> and one of my, my grandmother, she insisted I learned how to make corn fritters before she, she passed. Um, yeah. So I didn't master that somewhat. Um, and I love the fact that like, you know, those corn fritters or, um, you know, are, they're actually our fry bread, you know, mm -hmm. it's like people think connect fry bread with native Americans, you know, but mm -hmm. in the Southeast, that corn fritter, it, to me, that's our fry bread, mm -hmm. you know, and there's collard sandwich and, you know, there's so much nutrition in collards. I mean, they're full of minerals. You know, it's just really the way of cooking. But mm -hmm. honestly, I feel like, um, you know, we use what bacon fat. So I think that getting away from any type of processed fats is really the main way to stay with in integrity of our indigenous foods and then health. Mm -hmm. Because a little bit of animal fat isn't necessarily bad. You know, it's just having that balance with these foods, but I also remember, you know, my grandmother loved to grow zucchini, squash, cucumbers. Um, so we had a lot of like fresh vegetables too, llama beans. Mm -hmm. um, I remember shucking corn. So all of those fresh like vegetables and coming from the, the farm, you know, where it retains so many of the nutrients, that's where it's at. You know, mm -hmm. and all, all the flavor that we can continue to have. And, you know, we we probably don't give enough credit to eating in community also. Mm -hmm. You know, that when you're able to eat with people that you're connected to, whether that's kin or just friends and family, and having joy around food rather than stress around food, rather than just mere survival around food. That makes such a difference within our nervous system and the way that we're processing foods. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's important to remember is that when you eat with joy and that tradition and that connection with your community and your people, mm. like, wow, that is significant to your health and the way that your body is breaking down that food versus if you're just eating out of survival and you're eating alone and your nervous system is, is heightened. You know, when we can just let down our guard and enjoy meals together and even enjoy that chocolate cake without guilt oh, and without stress. Oh, we were stress. talking about yes. your chocolate cake. Yes. <laughs> Was it your grandmother's chocolate cake? Oh, I have a great aunt that great makes aunt, a delicious yes. one. My grandmother made a pound cake that was amazing. Her pound mm. cake was good. Mm. You're so right, because even just, you know, thinking about, um, I remember, you know, just visiting Fuller's Barbecue. Um, and, you know, just, I remember, you know, when you go into Fuller's, you just, you know, there's this whole, like, buffet and there's more vegetables than there are proteins. And I think we forget that, you know, we become such a meat consumed, um, you know, country and, you know, processed meat. And even, you know, when, when in the book that I put out uh, recently with Ed Mitchell and um, Ryan Mitchell, we talked a lot about that just in North Carolina, you know, people have the idea that, you know, everybody's eating pork all the time. And that's not, that's not the case, you know, and, and especially if you're raising your own animals, you know what's going in those animals, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and once the 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 genetic genetically modified foods and all the other things, and even you know what's happening with um, pine trees, you know, uh, my friend Jesslyn always talks about how, you know, the 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 contaminants from the environment are you know, hurting the pine trees. So it's affecting indigenous communities because when you make those, the pine tea, you know, then you're also ingesting all of those contaminants from the environment, you know. We'll be right back with Angela Locklear-Queen. Can't wait to talk more about Native American herbal medicine, 75 natural remedies for wellness and balance. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams of new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back with Angela Locklear-Queen. And I just wanted to go back and talk a little bit about just, even though, how do you feel about social media? I mean, you know, there's, it's, it's great in some ways in the sense that you know, I see a lot of indigenous communities sharing knowledge, um, sharing, you know, pride. And then I also see another side of it where you see, you're seeing indigenous herbal medicines, um, herbal practices being used for commercial use, um, as well as, you know, the, the idea of farm to table, the idea of foraging, right? Um, and I'm sure some people, their, their intentions might be definitely pure, but there's also another side of it that, um, a darker side, you know, that, that kind of, you know, removes us away from who should be foraging and who we should be supporting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Wow. Yes, that's a big one. Um, you know, I love social media. I love being able to connect with um, people from the Lumbee tribe, other tribes, and learn from them. 
Um, I really limit how many of the other like um, plant and herbalist accounts I follow because you're right, there is a lot of um, promoting in a way that doesn't really honor the 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 land, you know. And I wanted to point out in the book that foraging is is less than what you can take. It's more about listening and building a mindfulness with the land around you. And I really, you know, I early on I think I foraged a little bit um, more than necessary. And then the more I got into it, the more I was like, you know, you don't need to take any plants, honestly, at times, that you just sit with the plant and you ask it, like, what do I need from, from you? And do I need to take a little, you know? And I'm super cautious about sharing my foraging with people. Um, I've seen accounts that do it and I think, oh, well, I might get more views if I do this or do that. But ultimately the views aren't as important as me honoring my practice with the land and whenever I'm foraging or just spending time like with the plants outdoors, it really is a time for me to connect with the creator and connect with something bigger. So it's not something I care to, to, to videotape a lot of times or to educate about. And I think that there's an immense responsibility when it comes to foraging. One, to make sure that what you're gathering is actually the plant that you think it is because there's there's lookalikes out there and it could become really irresponsible to educate people on social media because they can't see the small details of the plant to know exactly and we've got what videos that are a minute a minute and a half um so you can't and you can't possibly educate well enough to make sure that they're getting the right plant and i don't want that responsibility on me that somebody collects the wrong plant and causes you know, health issues within themselves. And then, like you said, it's, um, you know, over foraging, poaching of plants become a thing, you know, golden seal become, is poached often, um, the white sage is poached. So um, that's just a system that I choose not to feed into. And um, I try to let people know that it's really more about building that connection with your, um, the environment around you more so than gathering. Unless you know for sure, like this is a safe place to gather because you have to consider pollutants. Like, are you aware that um, that, that area has not been sprayed, you know, and that there's not some type of runoff of water that is contaminated that's coming into that area? Are you aware of whether that plant is endangered, like you mentioned before, or if it's having a year where the growth is, is less, lesser? And then the ecology around that of like what animals depend on those plants. So there's so much to know and understand to be able to forage responsibly that I think that it really just can't, it, it's very difficult to do it on social media. And the best way to, to learn, once again, is connecting with your local tribe if possible and supporting um, you know, the person, the knowledgeable person within that tribe if you can find one um, and being respectful of what they don't want to teach you, you know, what they're choosing to hold sacred for themselves and honoring that, um, you know, and through hiring, if you're able to hire somebody from the tribe to teach you more about that the the land and the plants that grow there through that you know you're you're giving back to the tribe and you're offering you know potentially a job to someone who has this special knowledge you know and really lifting them up you know and showing them that their knowledge is important and respected and valuable so um you know i don't i just don't think that we're all meant to learn everything you know, and that we can look to those that have really honed in that knowledge for, you know, could be decades or who was passed down that knowledge and really lift them up and support them. Mm. This was such a great conversation, Angela. I'm so happy that you joined and I'm so, you know, glad that we finally were able to, you know, just have this conversation and, you know, I just, I encourage my listeners to purchase 
you know, and support um, Angela and, you know, definitely Elemental Herbal Teas, her company, uh, you know, and just learn and listen. That's the, that's the biggest takeaway, I think, from this conversation is to listen, protect, and, you know, listen to indigenous communities and allow them to be, not, not just allow, but remove yourself from the situation so that finally, you know, can return to the land and caretake um, and cultivate the land as it should be because we've lost so much uh, from colonization, when you look at even just historically, you know, the abundance of plants, herbs, foodways, culture, um, sacred practices, so much was taken away. So, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that, um, you know, this, we're in this age where uh, hopefully we will see a, a, a huge turnaround for all indigenous communities. So thank you, Angela, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a lovely conversation and all the points you brought up about the book are were just amazing and beautiful. Thank you so much for facilitating this conversation. You know, and like you said, it's all about listening and indigenous herbalists are still kind of on the outside when it comes to herbal conferences and education. So I really hope that just conversations like this will will start to change that and bring more spotlight to um, the wisdom keepers of our people. And I can't wait to uh, see you again, see you again or and, and eat some collard sandwiches. You know what I mean? Yes, I wanna, girl, yes. we're going to have to line up in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good old time. And where can uh, people find you and, you know, support your work, support uh, definitely Elemental Herbal Teas and follow you on social, on social media? So I'm very active on my, my personal Instagram, which is a.dawn Don Locklear. So it's a.dawn Locklear. Um, on Instagram and then I will tag my businesses throughout my profile page there so those are easy to find and my website is www.elemental-tees.com Thank you Angela for joining us and thank you Heritage Radio Network and all of our listeners and thank you our adver- for our advertisers who support uh, culture and flavor have a great day <laughs> Culture and Flavor is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.